but we've been looking at the series Rebuilding of Ruins, and so I have a question this morning for all of us. Will we be rebuilders? Will we be rebuilders? And one of the big questions we're going to have to answer today is, are you living a life of comfort and convenience, or are you living a life of purpose? And if you choose to live a life of purpose, then comfort and convenience goes out the window. And neither comfort nor convenience are sinful, but when we prioritize it over purpose, it gets in the way. And we're not here for ourselves. We're not here to be comfortable. We're not here for convenience. And a, a theme that's kind of been a part of our lives, back in 2006, um, we were kind of in between. We were living in Tennessee at the time. And God spoke to me very clearly one day that a door was about to open for us. And I didn't know exactly what it was. Not long after that, I began to feel like it was going back to Africa. And um, so when that began to become obvious, I heard myself say one day uh, to my wife, uh, we were in, 19, in 2006, I think I was 56 or 57 years old. And um, I made the statement, I think that's how old I was. I'm 74 now. It doesn't matter. But anyway, I made the statement at the time. I said, well, we might as well do it while we're young. And that's still the theme of our life, is that we can look at the natural circumstances of our lives. We can come up with all the reasons why we shouldn't do what God is saying to do. But if God is saying to do it, then we need to do it and trust him for the strength, for the stamina, and for the ability. And so if you're going to rebuild ruins in your life and in the lives of others, you're going to have to forget convenience and comfort. Uh, what are ruins? The definition of ruins is things that are in disrepair or in a state of decay. We could probably look at all of our lives and see things in that condition. And so God wants us to rebuild those things. And then he wants to bring us into the presence of people, into relationship with people who have things in their lives that are in disrepair and a state of, of decay. And I want to I quote Paul from uh, three weeks ago. I think it was three weeks ago. Uh, he said this, ruins, uh, excuse me, rebuilding is returning to Jesus what has been broken so that it is restored under his leadership. And the reason we do that, why do we want to uh, return to Jesus what has been broken so that it can be restored, so that we can do his will? What is his will? It's his pleasure. The word will is an ugly word, but the word will and the word pleasure in the Hebrew and the Greek are identical. Doing the will of God is doing that which pleases him. And I learned a long time ago that the only thing that really pleases and satisfies me is to do that which pleases the Father. If I choose pleasing me and it's not pleasing the Father, then ultimately I'm not going to be pleased, although there may be some pleasure in it for a season. So first of all, to do his will for his purpose. For his purpose, with his favor, his power, and his presence. I want to talk to you a minute about the word purpose. It's one of my favorite words. It's one of my daughter's favorite words. Jesus' role is not to help you discover your purpose. Jesus' role is to help us discover his purpose and then fit us into his purpose. 
Life's not about my purpose. It's about the purpose of God. Why am I occupying earth space? Why am I breathing good air? It's so that I can live in his presence to give him pleasure. That's the reason of life. I'm not here for me. I'm not here to make a million. I'm not here to influence people for me. We're here for the influence, influencing people for the king and his kingdom. Essential, returning, essential to returning to Jesus, what has been broken, is for we ourselves to return to him. I mean, there, there, there may be areas of your life, you know, there's all sorts of goofy theology. One goofy theology is Jesus became my Savior in 1972, but in 1980 he became my Lord. That's phony. There's no biblical evidence of that. The Bible says when I make him Lord, I'm saved. Confess him as Lord and I will be saved. So it, it's possible to have a relationship with Jesus, but you flirt with other things. You flirt with other things that are supposed to bring you pleasure, you think. So there needs to be a full returning to Jesus. I want, I want to look at three different passages this morning to begin with. Then the other 14 will come later. Uh, Zechariah chapter 1, all of these are from the Christian Standard Bible, which I have really fallen in love with recently. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me, and I will return to you. So God says, you make a move, and I'll make a move. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Then in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. There it is again. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Yet you ask, how can we return? And God has a way. He says, you may ask, how can we return? Well, let me ask you a question. He says, can a man rob God, or will a man rob God? You are robbing me. But you may ask, how do we rob you? And he says, by not making payments of the tenth and the contributions. From this, what do we see? We see they needed to rebuild the ruins of their stewardship and their finances. They had stopped doing what he said. He said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And he said, you're not only robbing me with tithes, but you're also robbing me with offerings. So it's a double robbery. So they needed to rebuild the ruins of their stewardship and their finances. Let me ask us a question. Do we need to rebuild the ruins of our stewardship and finances? Well, let me say this. It is not possible for our financial house to come into order without tithes and offerings. It's impossible. If, if I'm not a tither, if, I'm a, if I walk with Jesus and I'm not a tither and giver of offerings, then my financial house will never come into order. But if I'm a tither and a giver of offerings, then the ruins of my finances begin to come into order because I put God in what he says first. 
And I'm glad for the resounding amen that I'm getting right now for that. <laughs> and then one last thing. I want, I want to read this from, from James chapter 1. I think this is going to require my glasses. I'm sorry, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, he's writing this to Christians. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is, is hostility towards God? Now, the word world there is not people. It's talking about the world system, the world's method and, may, and, and means and ways. Friendship with the world system is enmity or hostility towards God. So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it is without reason that the scripture says the spirit that he has given to us yearns for us even with jealousy? Did you know God's jealous? He's a jealous God. He's not petty jealous. You know, if, if I happen to uh, give Chris a Christian hug and Bob gets angry and jealous, he's petty jealous. But if somebody starts moving towards Chris, Bob's jealous and that's a good thing. That's not petty jealous. Well, that's the way God is. God's a jealous God. I am intended for God. Every part of me is for God. And so when God sees me attached to other things, he's jealous of me. And he says the spirit that he's caused to dwell in us yearns for us, even with jealousy. But the next verse says, but he gives more grace. Grace here means enablement. He enables us to do what he wants us to do. Verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So once again, we've got return to God, I'll return to you. This says it a little bit differently, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so if we have become wayward in any way, God is calling us back. This is a time to return to the Lord. And he says, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. Paul gave us a challenge three weeks ago, accept the call of Jesus to be a rebuilder. It's, his, it's God's plan that everybody... There, there's, Christianity is not to be full of spectators. God's plan is that all of us be active. Jesus calls all of his followers to rebuild ruins, the disrepair and the decay of our lives. The first step in being a rebuilder is to leave Babylon or worldliness. Getting the mindset and methods of the world system out of us. Now, we're in the world, but we're not to be of it. And it's, I mean, it, it's almost impossible to not be influenced by the world system. But if we make a concerted effort to 
rather receive from God rather than to receive from what the world is saying, then it's easy for us to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the first thing we have to do is we have to get the methods and mindset of the world out of us. And the way that we get these mindsets and methods out of us is by, first of all, and this is so very, very important, you can't live as a believer without doing these two things. Number one, you have to accept your new identity. And your new identity is your position, and that is you are in Christ. Male or female, I am in Christ. Jew or Greek, I am in Christ. Black or white, I am in Christ. That's my identity. I have a new position. I have in Christ the way God treats Jesus is the way he treats me. I am in Christ and therefore I have an audience with Almighty God. And the second necessity is I have to walk or live according to the new life that I have in Christ. And that's called obedience. If I'm going to see the fruit of God in my life, it's not just enough to come to church and hear good preaching. I've got to have that incorporated into my life to where I live it out. My wife is constantly telling me, you preach that well, but. Never mind, that's another subject. <laughs> so I've, I've got to live it out. So I, I've got to see who I am. I, my identity is Christ. My identity is not even American. I am American. But uh, above everything, I'm a child of the king, and I'm a part of his kingdom. And I am in Christ, and I must walk in his ways if I'm going to see the fruit of what it is to be a believer. Jesus is the anti-Babylon. He is the anti-way of the world system. When I come into Christ, there's a, there's a new way. The world says, if you want it all, grab it all and keep it all. But God says, if you want to be blessed in life, be generous. That's what God says. You know, somebody that, that I greatly respect for years said, so many Christians at offering time, they squeeze the dollar bill so tight that tears come in the eye of George Washington. <laughs> and I'm not about to receive an offering, but, but stinginess is something God wants to break. Living in him, that is walking in his ways, gets the world's systems, ways and methods out of us. If I'm going to get those out, I've got to start walking a new path. And I mean, every Sunday it happens. We get excited about what we hear and then we don't do anything about it. And so by, by after lunch, we're back in the way of the world. I'm so impressed. The, the man who started NCMI, which is the group that we're uh, internationally involved with. And he didn't start this as a group. He just, you know, he just did what he was doing. He got saved in a Presbyterian church. He was in South Africa. He was, a, he was born in Zimbabwe. He lives in South Africa, lives in Australia now. But every Sunday after church, he and his wife would go home after the service. They would take notes in the service. Now listen carefully. Did you know that a short pen is, is on paper is better than the longest memory. I just thought I'd let you know that. 
<laughs> they would take notes and they would go home and rather than going to the kitchen to fix food, he would go to one bedroom and she would go to the other. They would get on their knees beside their bed and they would put their notes on the bed and they would go over and they would cry out to God, God, make this real in my life. If we casually take, listen, this is thus says the living God. This is not man's opinions. This is God Almighty what he says. And if I think that I can live contrary to this and have his blessing in my life, I'm a fool. And so out of that, what happened? I think they eventually ate. But out of that, what happened was that he began to get vision. He began to get insight. You say, well, I'm not called to start a ministry. Well, it doesn't matter. You're called to live a life that makes a difference that impacts people. And all of us are called to that. But so many times we're carrying so much baggage. Why are we carrying baggage? It's not because we're victims. It's because we make wrong choices. You know, the world has a way of saying things that is really crippling. They say, you made a bad mistake. No, you can make mistakes, but usually it's not mistakes, it's choices. We choose wrongly. We have a choice to choose God's way. And there's fruit that comes from that. Living in Him Walking in his ways is the way that we, that our lives are built or rebuilt. And living in him, walking in his ways is the way that we build and or rebuild others. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be fully put together before you can start helping people. But it's impossible to grow without doing. For example, how do you grow in patience? You don't pray for more patience. You start exercising patience. How do you exercise? How do you grow in love? You exercise love. You start acting in love. So that's, that's the way it is. Let's take a look at the reconstruction of the temple, which is the type or shadow, and relate that to the church, which is the antitype or the substance. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 23 to begin with, As soon as the text, that wasn't a phone text, that was a letter. As soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Reum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them from building. The building was being restored and the people of that territory, it says in Ezra, were not happy about it. Did you know there are forces in Detroit that are not happy about this church and other churches trying to establish a beachhead for the kingdom? And I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about there's principalities, there's powers, there's rulers of the darkness of this world. There's wicked spirits in the heavenlies. When Daniel cried out to God, God sent the angel on the moment he heard the prayer. But it took him how long? 21 days? 21 days. Thanks, Bob. The other theologian in the church. Anyway, <laughs> 21 days because he was confronted by the prince of Persia. The prince of Persia is not a human. It's an entity, a demonic spirit. Did you know there are demonic spirits in the world? If you don't, you need to read your Bible. 
And I mean, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in the heavenlies. So they forcibly stopped them from building. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. And then picking up in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2, and verses 6 through 8. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied, the place of prophecy is astonishing. I hate, I hate to think about my life without the prophetic, the prophetic people that we're in relationship with, the prophetic people that we've been in relationship with. I could, I could spend the next hour telling you things that God has spoken to us through individuals that were so significant in shaping our lives. They prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedach, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. So uh, the, the people had stopped it, but when the prophets came on the scene, it started again. You don't have to just have prophets, but we've been all called, according to, uh, according to 1 Corinthians. You can all prophesy one by one. The place of prophecy is so significant. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. And then verse 6, this is the text of the letter uh, that Tatanai said. Uh, and so when they read it, they sent him a report in verse 7, written as follows to King Darius, all greetings. Let it be known to the king that we went to the house of the great God. in the pro Now this is an unbeliever saying this. To the house of the great God in the province of Judah, it is being built with cut stones and its beams are being set in the walls. This work is being done diligently and successfully through the people's efforts. People, listen, our success is not tied to the pulpit. The success of what God has us doing is for each and every one of us. And put some New Testament understanding to that. Ephesians 4, 17 says, From Christ, the whole body, fitted and knit together, by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. The building of that temple was successful because everybody did their part. Our coming to wholeness and getting all the junk and the ruins out of our life is according to each of us doing our own part. As in Ezra's day, the work succeeded by everyone doing their parts. Today, successfully building up his body, his temple, happens when each part, each person does his or her work. We've been considering the rebuilding of the temple, God's house. Let's briefly look at the building of Solomon's temple and the purpose of it being built. Paul said this a few weeks ago. This is so important. He said it this way. Everything I've said so far points to this. Point to what? That God would have on the earth a house, the temple of the holy city of Jerusalem, where he himself would dwell. That's all what this is about. 
And we're not talking about a physical structure somewhere. The New Testament says, you know, the temple of God is not made with, with stones. And, and the term house of God is different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. The house of God in the Old Testament was a physical temple. But the house of God in the New Testament is God's family. We are the house of God. God lives in us. You are the temple of the living God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, excuse me. Yeah, I did. This is uh, the building of the temple of Solomon, 2 Chronicles 7. This is when it was completed, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. All the Israelites were watching when the fire descended and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and praised the Lord for he is good, for his faithful love endures forever. They were probably saying what we sang and the angels cried and they fall on their face, holy, holy forever. That's the God we serve, and there has to be that reverential fear of the holy God that we serve. What he says goes, and we have to live that way, that what God says goes. Verse 4, the king and all the people were offering sacrifices in the Lord's presence. So Solomon finished the Lord's temple and the royal palace. Everything that had entered Solomon's heart to do for the Lord's temple and for his own palace succeeded. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon, verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen. Listen to this. This wonderful temple that Solomon had built is not about the temple. He said, I have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. That was the purpose of the temple. Verse 15. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have, cho I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. So he chose it for himself as a place of sacrifice. After the temple was built and Solomon prayed. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. The fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice. When the building was constructed, God's fire and presence moved in. The building was not made for itself or for the people it was built for God to manifest His presence. That's what it was built for. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7 says, The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Usually when I teach on 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, I have a prop. But imagine a prop. I've got a potted plant here. Just think about your favorite flower. And it's a beautiful of your favorite flower. 
When I hold it up, do you look at the pot? No. You look at the flower. Where are the pots? His glory is what we is to be seen. We have this treasure in clay jars, so this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Second Chronicles verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 12 says, I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. Solomon's temple and the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt from ruins were temples of sacrifice. We, the temple of the Lord, the body of Christ, built from ruins, are made for sacrifice. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good pleasing and perfect will of God. Now we just talked about it's imperative that we get Babylon, the, the ways of, and methods of the world out of us. Now what we need to do is we need to be no longer conformed to this age, but we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And, and we have sold, I personally believe we've sold this passage short. When we've said you've got to get into the Word so that your mind can be renewed, that's only a part of it. Paul was writing this to the church at Rome, and they did not have family Bibles. This was pre-Gutenberg. Gutenberg created movable type, I think, 13th or 14th century. People didn't have family Bibles. Scriptures were precious. They were in the temple, maybe in the synagogue, and nobody had access to them. So what does he mean when he says that your mind may be renewed? We've got the advantage or disadvantage, depending. I mean, if all you do is study the Scripture and do nothing about it, you just turn into a Pharisee. But it begins by saying, present your body as a living sacrifice and do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Just like the temple of Solomon and the rebuilt temple, we are created for sacrifice. We were not created for ourselves, but for the Lord. The sacrifices in the temple were for God, every part. But they were dead sacrifices. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They are for God, every part. But we're to be living sacrifices. How do we not conform to this age and see our minds renewed? By living sacrificially to God, selflessly for His purposes. I mean, we, we've talked about the, uh, the gifted coming up. You know, I had the same thought. I'm glad what you said this morning. I've been away. How can we do that? How can you start gifted in the suburbs? How can you start a church in the suburbs with gifted? How can we be involved? Be a living sacrifice. Life is not about convenience. It's not about comfort. In other words, to take up what God is calling us to do requires us to choose His way over every other way. Sometimes it's not convenient to be in church on Sunday morning. It's not comfortable. But you can get to a place where this is priority on Sunday morning. I'm in church. 
unless I'm in the hospital. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm saying that we can come up with all sorts of excuses why not to do what God says to do. But if I see that I am to be a living sacrifice and that my ways are impacted by choosing to live sacrificially unto God, then life becomes fulfilling and meaningful. How do we not conform by living sacrificially? Sacrifice defined. What is sacrifice? To surrender or give up or permit injury or disadvantage to for the sake of something or someone else. I'm going to read that again. To surrender or give up or permit injury or disadvantage for the sake of something else. Did you know that everything great that has happened came by sacrifice? Some people say, well, we'd have kids if we can afford it. If you wait till you can afford it, you will not have kids. Isn't that right? <laughs> well, I'll become a tither and a giver when, when I make my first million. No, you won't. If you don't make it when you make your first hundred, it won't happen when you make your first million. That's what we have to understand is that you start where you are. You start where you are. So many things. Abraham, when God spoke to him to leave, he couldn't afford it, but he did it anyway. Uh, and I'm not bragging on me. This is just something that's been built in me. Let me give it as a testimony. God wanted uh, me, he opened the door for me to go to India in 2010. I knew it was the will of God, and I accepted it. I didn't have a penny for the air ticket. And God laid it on the heart of somebody, and I didn't go around dropping hints. <laughs> God laid it on somebody's heart to pay through their ticket. So when the day came, I had $100 to my name, so I go on a two-week trip to India with $100. And the first night I was there, I preached in a church. I didn't know what the size of the church was. I had somebody arrange this. It was a big church. They took up an offering that funded the entire trip. Now, if I had said, well, I can't afford I, I'd like to go. I think God's saying it, but I don't know where I'm going to get the money for the tickets. And when the tickets came, I'd really like to go, but I just don't have the money. If you go by what God says, then God takes care of you. And we've got to break out of this thing where we count the pennies. I think we should be frugal. I don't think we need to be wasteful. I believe in budgets. But I don't tell you, if you've got a budget and you go to walk with God, he's going to break your budget wide open. He will. <laughs> That's for sure. Sacrifice is inconvenient and uncomfortable. If we live for personal convenience and sacrifice, we will never see the ruins of our lives rebuilt. Part of the reason for ruins in our life is that we have lived for comfort and, and convenience. You know, what happens to a body that becomes sedentary? They say sedentary life is the new smoking. That you get the same Effect in your body if all you do is sit around all day as you do from smoking. God, in created, God created us to be mobile. He created us to be active. And in the kingdom, activity, not just for the sake of activity. Activity is essential for development of ourselves and for that which God has called us to do. This is how we overcome the areas that have, have created ruin in us. This is how we help rebuild others. And just as the fire and presence of God filled Solomon's temple, 
To be effective builders and rebuilders, we must be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. We must have His presence. The difference in our life can't be who we are naturally. It must be Him in our lives. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, and I'm, I'm beginning to close. The key word is close, not beginning. Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen on your walls. We're going to pray tomorrow. I hope we pray every day. I, I pray that our prayer times are not just what we, when we gather to pray. Prayer should be a part of our life. I have appointed watchmen on your walls. They will never be silent day or night. There is no rest for you who remind the Lord. Excuse me. Yeah, there is no rest for you who remind the Lord. Do not give him rest. That is, do not give God rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. I'm going to read from theologian John Gill, who I really enjoy what he has to say. John Gill, he's written concerning these verses. Give him no rest. That is, be incessant in prayer until he establishes church, which, through, though, which though founded by him, built upon his sure foundation, against which the gates of hell cannot prevail, yet as to its outward state is sometimes fluctuating and unstable, but it will be established on the top of the mountains, symbolic of a place of prominence. It will be a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. It is the Lord's work, this is Gil continuing, it is the Lord's work to do through builders here. He has promised it will happen. Therefore, it may be prayed for and worked toward in faith. Nor should his followers cease praying and working until it is done until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth, till the church makes Jesus famous in the world, and he shall be praised by those he created. And then I'll end with Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. In the last days, the mountains of the, Lord house, the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains, prominence, and will be raised above the hills. All nations, that word nations in the Hebrew is goi, and it means people groups, just like ethnos means uh, people groups in the New Testament. It's the Great Commission. It says all nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Why does God teach us about his ways? So that we can walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You know, when God broke out in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit was sent, people were almost afraid to join themselves to the church because there was such power there was such a manifestation, but there was such prominence, not 
ego prominence, not fleshly prominence, not we're trying to impress you with our instruments. We're not trying to impress you with our dress. What we want you to be impressed with is Him, the presence of the living God. And if I'm carrying around in my life rubbish, rubble, broken things that He has already, by His grace, made provision for restoration and rebuilding, then I'm not going to be able to help myself. I'm not going to be able to help people. This is a day of rebuilding ruins. And the way we do it is we give act, get active with what God says. It, it just doesn't come. Yes, you can pray. Yes, God, give me grace for this. We need the grace of God. Grace in that sense is enabling faith. There's a redeeming faith which, faith which brings us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. But there is an enabling faith that enables me to face the task every single day. But the thing about enabling faith or accomplishing faith is this. is here I stand. And over there is obedience. But it's fearful sometimes. When do I experience this enabling and accomplishing grace? Many times I do not experience the enabling and accomplishing grace until I take the first step <laughs> into obedience. And that's where you find it. That's where you find it. You count the cost. The count, counting the cost is not about what you have naturally. Counting the cost is about what you are willing to step into in the purpose of God to see him come through. We have a God who's not only willing, we have a God who is able and he's, he's, he's manifested his ability. What is the ability? If we want to see what God is like, look at Jesus in the gospel. Jesus is the will of God in action. He demonstrated his willingness through Jesus. He demonstrated his willingness to Jesus when he saved me and redeemed me and he demonstrates his willingness as we take up what he says and say here am I Lord send me Isaiah it's interesting you look at the call of Jeremiah God specifically said Jeremiah I've called you to to be a prophet to the nations to pull up to root up to to tear down to destroy to plant and to build but Isaiah overheard God <laughs> Isaiah was near the temple and he heard God say, who will I send? And who will go? God is crying out today, who will be a rebuilder? Who will be a rebuilder of the ruins in your life? Who will be a rebuilder and a builder of the lives of people you come in contact with? Let our cry be, hear my Lord. Send me. By your grace, I will do it. By your grace, I will do it. Let's pray.